0: Well, if you keep your Bibles open at 1 Samuel 18 uh, and 19. Theme this evening is the trials and preservation of God's King and God's people. The trials and preservation of God's King and God's people. There are times in life when We're doing nothing wrong, and we're obeying God, and difficulty seems to be falling on us. It's one thing after another, and it just seems to keep on going. And what are we to make of it, and what are we to do? There are other times when we've done wrong, and we're not surprised whenever life becomes hard for us, but those moments and those times and those months and even those years when We've been seeking to be faithful. And one thing after another happens. One thing after another goes wrong. And we wonder, how are we to cope? What are we to do? Jesus' disciples were surprised at the rejection of Christ by the religious authorities. Remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they're downcast because they thought that Jesus was the Messiah. And they thought that he was the one. And Jesus says to them, or showed them, that the Christ must suffer. That the Christ must suffer. He showed them that from Scripture. Now, what parts of Scripture might he go to? Yes, he could have gone to Isaiah. He could have gone to all sorts of different places in the Psalms. But where could he have seen an anointed one suffering? the whole story of David. And as we started to think last week, we saw parallels between David as an unlikely king, an unlikely anointed one. And remember that anointed uh, is the English word for Messiah, for which Christ is the Greek word. And so, when we read of anointed, we're thinking of Messiah. We're thinking of God's anointed rescuer. We saw last week God's unlikely ways in choosing David and how that is mirrored in the choosing uh, or the, 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 the coming of Jesus. And we saw God's equipping of David by his spirit and, and how in, uh, in Jesus we see the same thing. And we're starting to see a pattern and a picture building of God's Messiah. And the next thing really that we're reading uh, of uh, the Messiah uh, the anointed one in First Samuel 18 is of trial and difficulty and him suffering many things. And there's three things for us to look at this evening because we need to remember that as it went for the king, so it goes for the king's people. As it goes for the Messiah, so it goes for Messiah's people. And as we look at this, we'll hopefully uh, be equipped and encouraged. Three things to note. First of all, there's a choice to be made. There's a choice to be made. Uh, David has triumphed over Goliath. And that's not just a story for Sunday school and for children. You know, small boy makes good against great giant. This is the anointed one fighting on behalf of his fear-filled, intimidated, beleaguered people. They were powerless against the Philistines and against uh, Goliath. And the Anointed One triumphs on their behalf. You see what's a picture of. And then, as we read on, we find that something in David's bravery and character resonates with the people. And we read over and over again that the people love David. We see the people of Israel and Judah in verse 16 love him. The attendants in verse 22 love him. Verse 28 Michael loves him. And we read in verse 4 uh, that Jonathan, or verse 1 even, that Jonathan, Saul's son, loved David. Or told him again in verse 4 that he loved him as himself. And you know, in the 20th century, in the 21st century, uh, some writers have wanted to sexualize this uh, relationship. There's no hint of that in the passage. It's utterly contrary to what the passage is saying. When this passage says that Jonathan loved him as himself, do you hear the echo of the the, the second great commandment that We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Here is Jonathan, the godly man, fulfilling the command of God. And it's quite astonishing, really, because David is a rival for the throne. And Jonathan's attitude to David is utterly selfless. And we read that Jonathan, in verse 4, took off his robe that he was wearing and gave it to David. He's a prince. He's first in line to the throne. And he takes his princely robe. And he gives it to David. And then he takes his, uh, his tunic. And even his sword. His bow and his belt. Jonathan is giving to David. The insignia of his, of his <laughs> prince. Uh, His his princeliness, the insignia of royalty, he's giving his armor. Jonathan is in effect renouncing the throne and saying to David, Here, this is yours. This belongs rightly to you. Jonathan is a man of godliness and clear-sightedness. We need to remember that Jonathan. You know, sometimes in our children's story Bibles, we put these pictures of David and Jonathan. They're they're two boys, and they're about 15, uh, and they're pals and they're mates. That's not it at all. Uh, Jonathan is about 27, 20, 23 to 27 years older than David. David is perhaps somewhere around 17. He's not in the army. He's still at home. Remember whenever. Uh, he came and took on Goliath but yet he was old enough to be out minding the sheep and fighting a lion and a bear so uh, to be in the army he had to be 20 so david's not yet 20 and we know that uh, jonathan and whenever he put it together he's about 27 years older and so this son who would be king this prince this senior commander of Saul's army, a man of immense bravery himself, takes his royal regalia and his sword. Jonathan was a a fearsome warrior and he lays it at David's feet. It's a giving of allegiance. It's a stepping away from the throne. Jonathan has made his choice. Who will be king? Jonathan says the Lord's anointed will be king. What a contrast with Saul as we see it unfolding in the rest of the chapters as David's success grows. We read that the Lord is with David but the Lord is not with Saul and Saul becomes consumed with jealousy. We read that in verse, uh, in verse 8. Um, yes, Saul was angry this refrain galled him and he keeps sending David out uh, to battle the Philistines. And one of the things perhaps you remember from our earlier studies in Samuel is that Saul, whenever something had to be done, Saul often wasn't doing it. He was sitting uh, under a tree. He was sitting on his hands. He wasn't doing what he ought to have been doing. And even when it came to Goliath, Saul, who was a big man himself, he's not going out to battle him. And yet, so the man who should be doing things keeps sending somebody else to do things. And when that other person's successful, uh, Saul's jealous. You'd think if it had any wit, he would have gone and done the things and made David sit in his hands. Assigned David to paperwork somewhere. But jealousy often makes no sense at all. But it's not just simple jealousy. It's a reaction against God's king. Saul had been told that he wouldn't be king and here's this contrast with jonathan jonathan willing to place all at the anointed's feet at as it were messiah's feet and saul determined to wear to cling on to his failing crown for as long as possible refusing to submit jonathan engages in a wonderful act of obedience and faith faith surrenders our crown It puts our crown down before the anointed, before the Messiah, but rebellion hangs on to it. You know, the way to greatness is not to seek to be first, it's to put ourselves second. That's what Jonathan does here. And there's echoes here of uh, between and parallels between John, between Jonathan and John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist saying about Jesus, He must become greater and I must become less. And then Jesus said of John the Baptist, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not been anyone greater than John the Baptist. Jesus lifted him up because John had, as it were, placed himself low before him. Greatness. Greatness comes when we acknowledge God's king instead of contending with the king for supremacy. So there's a choice to be made. So who are you? Are you a Saul? Are you a Jonathan? Anyone listening who hasn't yet put their trust in Jesus Christ, what you're really doing is saying, I'll hold on to my failing crown. I'm going to hold on. To it. I, won't, I won't bow the knee before King Jesus. I'm going to hold on to this. And we see with Saul the chaos, the carnage, the pain, and the failure that that brings. Saul looks miserable. Jonathan looks heroic. And so for those of us who have put our trust in Christ... Will we bring everything and put it? Will we bring all before the king and say, "Here, Lord Jesus, it's all yours. Or are there areas of our lives where we want to, to hold on to our crown and say, I'm going to be king. I'm going to be queen in this corner of my life. And notice that Jonathan does this. He bows the knee to the Messiah. If we put it in those terms, even at cost of family loyalty. Even at cost of family loyalty. It's going to cause a a rupture uh, in the family with his father. His father will have harsh and unpleasant words to say to Jonathan later on. There is a choice to be made. And here's this great illustration of what it is to follow the Messiah and to be one of the anointed king's people. So there is a choice to be made. And then secondly, there are trials to be faced. There are trials to be faced. Uh, Saul's jealousy begins to take over. And you get a little study in jealousy here. You know, Saul starts to meditate on a silly song, on a throwaway line, and he starts to meditate on it, and it gets under his skin and isn't that sometimes how jealousy works in us? Somebody says something and it's off the cuff and they didn't mean it, but it gets under our skin and we can't let it go and it niggles and it burns and it poisons and it rots in our head until it's decayed all through our thinking and its toxin is spread. And that's what we see with Saul. It's how jealousy works. And we see him Going from bad to worse. We see I think it's eight attempts in those two chapters on David's life. Uh, Three spear throwing incidents. Once he sends David out on campaigns, although that's a repeated attempts on David's life. Then uh, there's the incident with the dowry. And then there's a straight command to Jonathan and his servants to kill David. And then there's the ambush that he sends the men uh, to, to ambush him at home. And when we read Psalm 59, you get the sense that it's not just that those men came one night, but that they were prowling the city. They, they were there uh, and they were, they were hunting for David in and out the doorways. And David was hiding and jerking around and th- they've been hunting him. They're prowling looking for him. There is a hit squad prowling around the city looking for him. And then there's a final attempt uh, whenever Saul sends the soldiers to where Samuel and David are. And we've got the sad descent of Saul. Uh, we see it uh, in verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David and had left Saul. And we've got Saul the spear thrower. Saul who uses his daughters uh, to entrap David. Saul who breaks his promise to give his eldest daughter to David. Uh, Saul who's so consumed with his revenge that he robs his daughter of her dowry. What a selfish, grotesque, man he was. What, what, he, what he did to his daughter there, she should have been receiving a sizable amount of money so that if David were killed in battle she would have a dowry. She would have um, something for herself to sustain and to support her And what she got. And Saul's jealousy is making him increasingly brutal. There's the power of jealousy. Jealousy at what God gives to another. And if Saul had loved the people of God, Saul would have been delighted at what God had given to the people of God for their help and for their protection. But he's too wound up in himself, and he's too wound up in his reputation, and he's too involved in what people think of him. And in sends sense, the key to fighting jealousy is to recognize that it is God who equips. It is God who gives. And people who have something that we wish we had, God has given it to them because it is right for them to have it. And it's not right for us to have it. If it was good and wise for us to have it, God would have given it to us. And it's recognizing that God is sovereign and not us and reminding ourselves of that. That God's plans for us are always for what is best. And David faces trial after trial after trial. We get that sense from Psalm 59 and those opening verses of it. And why? Why is this the case? It's for the development of David. James 1 verse 2 says, testing produces perseverance. Romans 5 verse 3 and 4 says, we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope, and hope does not disappoint. And we see, and that's, isn't that why we love the Psalms of David? Because we see in them perseverance. And we see in them character. And we see in them resilience and hope. Now, if that had not If David had not gone through those trials, we would not have those Psalms, and God's people that have been sustained by those Psalms for three millennia now would not have had that level of sustenance. So it's for the development of David, but also for the good of God's people. But not just for the development of David, it's to portray Christ. Remember what Hebrews... uh, Rather, what, what Jesus said uh, to them on the road to mess, the Messiah must suffer many things. Remember what it says in Hebrews that Jesus learned obedience, that he was tested in every way just as we are. And here is God's pattern, his anointed. And again, I don't think it's stretching things too far to think of Jesus in the synagogue, reading the scroll of his ancestor, David, the anointed, the Messiah, in that sense of the word, a Messiah with a small m. And reading it and seeing the pattern and realizing this, this is the root map for my life. I'm going to face this sort of rejection and this sort of trial to portray Christ, to develop David to portray Christ. And why these trials? Well, they're not only for David's development, and they're not only to portray Christ, but they're also God's pattern for Christ's people. They're God's pattern for Christ's people. As it goes with the king, so it goes with the people. There are trials to be faced, trials that keep coming. And isn't it so Helpful for us to, to hear David in Psalm 59 saying, I've done nothing wrong. Why are all these things happening to me? I've done nothing wrong. Yes, there's other times when in Psalm 32 where he's done something wrong and he acknowledges that, and we, we know that experience. But whenever we see all going wrong and, and there's something in us wants to look and say, well, I must have done something wrong. And we look at the Psalms and we find no That's not the case. We look at this account of David's life and we see that there's going to be hostility. There's going to be trial. There's going to be difficulty. There are trials to be faced. It was the way of Christ. It's the way of David. It's the way for us. So don't be surprised. Don't be taken aback by it. Jesus said in this world you will have trouble. There are trials to be faced. And then thirdly, there is provision to be enjoyed. There is provision to be enjoyed. How do you live in a time of trials? How do you live when things are going wrong? How do you live when it seems to be one thing after the other? And you've made the right choice. You've done a Jonathan, as it were, and you've taken your crown off and, and you've, you've, Submitted to the king. And this is what life is like then. And life, life for David, um, in a sense, switching characters here, but learning the same lesson. David, as he's submitting to God, he's finding that it's not all a walk in the park. But what does he see? And I think the passage is here to show us the power and reality and variety Of God's provision. The power and the reality and the variety of God's provision. God's presence is with David. We're told that three times. It's hammered home to us. God is with David. And that as it is for the king, so it is for the king's people. Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so we have God's presence with us, the same way that David did. But not only that, look at the variety of God's provision. Um, some of it's extremely ordinary. David ducks three times. You know, uh, But God enables him to see the spear coming and to duck. Not only that, but there's God's general uh, protection in battle. And then there's God's protection, the time he goes amongst the Philistines to collect the dowry. And then there's God's protection through Jonathan uh, speaking up for him and Jonathan defending him. And then there's God's protection through Saul's daughter. And there's this whole weird incident with uh, her taking an idol. What's there an idol doing in the house anyway? Um, but remember, this is, this is that messy period at the end of the book of Judges and on into Samuel where Israel is in disarray, and the whole place has been a godless mess. And so in one sense it shouldn't surprise us that there's all sorts of irreligious carry-on and relics and and idols about the place. But Saul's daughter comes to David's defense. And then you've got the incident whenever Saul um, sends three troops of men uh, to Nioth, to get David. And God supernaturally intervenes. And the men start to prophesy. And then Saul himself loses the head. And he says, well, if you men can't do it, I'm going to have to do this myself. And he goes down the road in a bit of a strop. And he gets there. And the next thing he knows, he's prophesying the whole way along the road. And then you've got this, <laughs> this wonderful moment where, remember how we started the section off? Jonathan willingly takes his robe off and puts it at the feet of David. At the end of the section, we've got Saul, and he can't help himself. He takes his royal robe off and he flings it at the feet of Samuel and perhaps David too. God will not be thwarted. God's people will not be left unprotected God's favour is always stronger than Satan's malice. God's provision doesn't mean that there are no trials, but it does mean he will provide in all of it. And that's what we see. And look at the sheer variety. Sometimes God's provision is very ordinary. David ducks. Sometimes for us, God's provision is very ordinary. You go to Tesco and you buy bread and there's food on the table. But behind it all, it's God's provision. God's provision is very ordinary. You're five minutes late leaving the house, but that five minutes that you're late leaving the house means that you missed an accident down the road or somebody that stepped off the footpath and would have been in front of your car or whatever it is. provision is very ordinary. Sometimes it's in our hands. Sometimes it's through other people who say something or do something, as it was with Jonathan standing up uh, for for David. And sometimes his provision is direct divine intervention. God's not stuck. God doesn't have a limited playbook in how to provide for his people. God has a myriad of ways to provide for his people's needs in the midst of trial and difficulty. God won't allow anything to thwart his king or his kingdom. And we see the parallels here with Christ. All the plans of the rulers of the Jews and the Romans and Satan and even the cross, they couldn't thwart God's plans. They thought they were triumphing, and yet they were only doing what God had ordained beforehand to happen. so we have a God who provides. And God's provision is to be trusted and enjoyed. All the the trials must have perplexed David. But as they perplexed him, the deliverance that kept on coming or the provision that kept on coming must have given him confidence. And I want to finish just with two applications from this. First of all, As we live for our Savior, seeking to follow our Savior, and we find whatever trials we go through, you can have confidence in God's keeping. Confidence in God's keeping. That's our first application. There's no need to be thrown by trials. God brings them for our development and for the good of His people and His kingdom. And we can either focus on our trials as if they're surprising. And Peter says, do not be surprised at the trials that have come upon you. Or we can focus on the God who will equip and protect. And you know, we know what David did. We can read his prayers. And whenever you read Psalm 59, there's just, there's just a lovely richness to David's trust. He says, "O oh my strength, I watch for you. He says at the end of it. He says, they return at evening, snarling like dogs, but I will sing of your strength. And then there's a lovely bit. He says, in the morning, I will sing of your love. He's going to go and lie down and sleep in peace. He wrote that in Psalm 4, but he's going to do it again here because God will keep him safe. There's a hit squad looking for him at night. And he says, well, I'm going to get up in the morning and sing of your love. Confident that God will have protected and provided for him. For you are my refuge in times of trouble. Oh, my strength, I sing praise to you. Oh, we can have confidence in God's keeping. The trials and the Psalms from 54 to 60 are all different trials, but they all have God's constant provision through it i will sing of your strength in the morning i will sing of your steadfast love and if you're going through trials at the minute lift your eyes from your trials and look to god who will provide and know with david that you will sing of his strength and in the morning you will sing of his love so where's our focus we can have confidence in god's keeping he loves and he gives strength. And then the second point of application is that means that we can show grace under pressure. Sometimes, maybe often, when we're under pressure and we're facing trials and difficulties, we retaliate to people who do things against us or we snap at others around us. Look at David. Saul tries to Kill him numerous times. He flings spears at him. And David, yes, has to duck, but David also leaves the spear lying. David's a warrior. He could quite easily have lifted the spear and flung it back. And we're going to see that grace because he trusts God's protection and God's provision. We're going to see that grace repeated whenever Saul has him, uh, or whenever David has Saul at his mercy in a, in a cave. The hallmark of David in this, in these chapters, is that he doesn't return evil for evil. You know, it's interesting, Saul always seems to be twirling a spear. Seems to have one in his hand. And sometimes we can be like that, where we have words going round our head. And if somebody says something to us, we've got the reply ready to, to, to hurl at them. And we need to watch and guard against that. Uh, David David, what's he doing? He he's busy taking it all to God. And God, you deal with him, you judge him, you you sort it out. I'm going to sing of your love for me. His focus is right. And that allows him to respond with grace under pressure. And that brings us back to the start. We have a choice who's going to be king? You see, if we try to be king in our own lives uh, and want to try and dictate to God how life is to be lived and what way it should unfold and what should happen next and all of this, we will become frustrated. We will become angry, angry at God, frustrated with Him and His providence, uh, angry at others who cross our path or our plans But if we trust that God knows what he's doing and that his ways are better than our ways and wiser than our ways and higher than our ways and we let him be king we'll experience his provision we'll experience his protection we'll experience trials yes but we'll find him supplying us and equipping us the whole way through just like David did. And just like David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, did. Amen. If you're able, let's stand as we come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, you have mapped out in David's life this uh, wonderful portrait where we can see something of our Savior and something of us. And... Lord, we thank you that as we as we see something of our Savior, we see that he is the, the worthy king, the one that you appointed and anointed. And Lord, we come and help us to take the crown off our head and to put it down and to leave it down and to stop contending with you for supremacy. All those times when we argue with you and we we like to think with our tiny little brain that we know better than your ways and that we can plan our lives better uh, than you can. And, and, Lord, help us to get off the throne and to stay away from the crown and to let you be God. And, Lord, help us. Help us. Help us to, to trust that your ways, when you take us through trials, are for our good and for the good of your people, for our strengthening and development the way it was for David, the way that you took your son, and if you took your great king and your greater son on those paths, Lord, who are we to say that we deserve an easier path? And so, Lord, help us to know that as you took David on that path for his good, and as a saviour went on that path so that he could be our saviour, that your ways are always good they're truth and mercy sure and Lord thank you that as we walk down whatever path we go on um, sorry whatever path you take us on that you will provide for us and thank you that over and over again we see you doing it sometimes in ordinary ways and sometimes in extraordinary ways and Lord help us to look to you the way David did to the God who is our strength, to the God who loves us and who will provide for us all that we need. Father, you know what this week holds for us. And we thank you that you'll provide for us all that we need. And we pray you'd help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.